0: Visit bankofamerica.com/slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, science correspondent, and I'm joined today by Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor, and Ken Kukier, the data editor. Today we'll be talking about the rise and rise of ad blocking and robots that are not fully autonomous, but rather operated by humans. First up, though, ad blocking has been around for more than a decade, Ludwig. Why is it we're we're, we're thinking about it now? Indeed.
1: I mean, the the first kind of efficient ad blocking software programs were introduced 10 years ago. But they were first used mainly by techies, by people who actually knew how to install them. And so that was kind of a minority. And now in recent years, the usage usage has exploded, I would say. And uh, we're now talking about more than 200 million people. Having ad-blocking software installed in their browsers, so it it, it it it's it's a big deal, and 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 publishers are getting worried.
0: So, what is it? What's what's driven this from sort of the, the the techie backwaters and into everybody's browsers?
1: There are two reasons. One one is the technology has gotten much better, so it's much easier today to install an ad blocker. So the, the, the most popular browsers, Chrome and Firefox, allow you to do this with a few clicks. You go to the extension app store and and, and, and click on that, and the extension it installs itself, and, and, and you're set. The other reason, which I think is more important, is that kind of the demand for, for ad blocking has increased. So many websites now have uh, very annoying ads, pop-ups, pop-unders, interstitials, videos, uh, pre-rolls that, that kind of start automatically, and it's hard to stop them. So people, especially young people, don't like that and install ad
0: blocking software. Well, it reminds me of the very early days of the web where they were pretty garish pop-ups and what have you, and those kind of have, have tended to go away. Now they're coming back. But, I mean, the, for all of that time, this has been the, the basis of, of the economy on the web. This is what pays for stuff on the web. What, what are the publishers doing about this if people are trying to avoid making them their money? Yeah, it, it, it's
1: it's starting to really hurt. I mean, I've, I've talked to a, a website in Germany, a big media company, and, and they say they lose about $9 million Euros per year because of ad blocking. That's that's about a fifth of their website uh, advertising revenue. So it's it, it's quite significant. One thing they're doing is they're going back to less intrusive ads. You no know, more videos that start themselves. The other thing is that they're trying to educate ad blocking users. So if you have an ad blocker, you go to a website, you may see a message. So, uh, you are you aware uh, that you're kind of taking away money from us? We're losing money. How else are you going to support us? So they're trying to, to, to show users that that there's no free lunch. So if, if they if they don't see the Ads. Uh, this site may go away. There are more robust ways of dealing with ad blocking. So, so some sites actually stop you act from accessing or keep you from accessing content and say, I mean, if you, if you have your, if you don't turn off your ad blocker, you can see this this content. In Germany, uh, publishers have started to sue ad blocking companies, in particular, AdBlock Plus which is the the most popular ad blocking software because they also have a program called what's called acceptable advertising. So basically if your website, uh, you can pay them or you can ask them to be whitelisted, to be kind of made an exception. And they look at your website and if if your ads are acceptable, meaning not intrusive, then you get put on, on, on this whitelist. But they also charge certain companies, big websites, for doing this. So these, these publishers have said this is kind of extortion and, and, and went after them in court.
0: Well, so far all of this discussion, though extortion or not, has been about the, the use on desktops. And you say that the sort of principal users of, of ad blocking are young people, and young people disproportionately use smartphones. How does all of this translate to, to sort of use in, in mobile land?
1: That, that, that's correct. And so, and so far most ad blocking happens on browsers, desktop browsers, uh, personal computers. But the phenomenon starting to emerge on, on, on mobiles as well. You have to know that, that the kind of the, the, the ecosystem or the, 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 the platforms on mobile are more protected. So uh, Apple and Google, they can basically control what type of apps you can install on, 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 your, on your phone. And so what Google has done, it, it, it kicked off ad-blocking software and ad-blocking app uh, two years ago. But now companies like Adblock Plus have found ways around that. And it's, it's, they, they have developed their own browsers which you can download, and they have ad-blocking software installed. That has been very popular in India and, and China, where ads are quite intrusive and where people kind of use apps but also do web browsing a lot. And and, and so I think in, in China, one of these browsers has 500 million users. It's getting to, to that platform, to mobile as well. There's also another possibility to block ads on mobile is uh, basically in the network, that the operators install some software in their network that filters out or blocks ads. It would come to me as a surprise if, if ad blocking doesn't kind of play a significant role on, on, on mobile too in a few years.
0: Well, it's certainly something we're already seeing more of. In fact, our producer here today uh, happened to see a fairly unpleasant mobile ad. In any case, a story that we'll be coming back to for sure. Uh, thanks for that, Ludwig. Now, Ken, the Amazon Picking Challenge took place last week in Seattle to see if robots could replace workers on on the packing line. What's this all about? So, Amazon has
2: 50,000 people who work in its depots worldwide. And last month, they announced they're going to be hiring 6,000 more. Of course, they'd like to replace some of those people with robots. Now, what you're probably thinking, yes, they already do have robots. They've got 15,000 robots in their fulfillment centers, but they're more like trolleys or forklifts. They're not like Robbie the Robot or Terminator. The gold standard, of course, is a fully autonomous, cognizant, thinking, adaptable Terminator robot, but for packing shipment boxes of paperback books and bubble bath. Sadly, however, the Terminator robots were anything but. Uh, They did terminate in 20 minutes, and in 20 minutes, the winning robot picked 10 items and only 10 items in 20 minutes. So even the most lazy worker can do better than that. Observers there said it was like watching paint dry. However, the contest came alongside an important academic and industry event. It's the IEEE International Conference on Robotics and Automation. Two researchers there from the University of Bristol presented an interesting paper on a handheld robot. It's a little bit like a dousing rod or an electric weeder. The idea is that a person would carry it and the machine would do the work. This overcomes a shortcoming of robotics and AI research, which is the ability to have the software that powers the robots, Machines are good at difficult things, like lifting a ton or following a specific path perfectly, which people aren't able to do. But machines are not very good at doing things that people are good at, like walking around an obstacle or picking up a rubber ducky bath toy.
0: And um, I'm looking at, at pictures of this, this gizmo here. It seems to be sort of, well, as you say, kind of like an electric weeder, and it has sort of interchangeable tools at the end of it. But it, it does make me wonder, you know, if, if the human has to kind of walk this thing around as, as one would a vacuum cleaner or a broom or whatever, what do we need the robot for at all?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So it turns out there's lots of settings in which you want both. You want the machine and you want the, the person. So take the example of uh, a medical situation, in a hospital where you need to clean up uh, an area to make sure it's actually spotless and germ-free. The human being might be lazy or may not be very efficient and may not know how to clean it so perfectly well so that that area is indeed germ-free, but can certainly walk there and walk walk around obstacles to get there. On the other hand, the robot that is on the weeder or the dousing rod uh, device would actually be able to clean it up to a level of perfection that human beings would never be able to get. It would remember if the area has been clean or not. It would be able to test it right away. It would be able to reach areas that it wouldn't be able to get to, although the human arm can extend so far. You'd then have another device to be able to do it. So it turns out there's going to be lots of different cases in which we're going to want to marry the great power that we see in human beings to do things that are hard for computers to do and to have computers, based. based on solid AI and robotics doing things that human beings just simply cannot do themselves. It bridges the world of what we'll call AI and IA. AI is artificial intelligence, IA is intelligence augmentation turns out at the very beginning of computing in the 1950s and 60s, there were two departments at Stanford. AI was artificial intelligence, and IA was in another part of campus, and that was doing something different. It wasn't trying to have computers mimic human beings and act like human beings. It was trying to improve the way that human beings think through the machine. And from that came advances like the personal computer, the computer mouse, networked computers, and the graphical user interface. Now, what's interesting here is that the two churches never really met. They didn't get along. There was a lot of hostility. What's happening now is we have a technique that is bridging these two cultures by focusing on what people are able to do and what the software is able to do and the hardware.
0: Well it's certainly an interesting angle on the marrying man and machine, that sort of cyborg business that we often talk about here. Uh, But I'm afraid that's all that we have time for this week. Thanks for that, Ken, and thanks again, Ludwig. If you'd like more science and technology coverage, you can find it at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist